Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, it's Parshas Breshis, so we're at the beginning of a, a new cycle of the Torah and uh, a new year, a new world, a new us. And um, I'm excited to to dive in. There's so many there's so many thoughts I want to share. So many things that have been building up over the holidays and things like that. And um, just um, hopefully uh, new ways of of, of understanding. Uh, just what it means to be alive and what this world is and, and, and our role in it and all the rest. So, so with, that, with, with that introduction, um, uh, one of the most sort of exciting ways of approaching the Torah and understanding what the Torah is, 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 is approaching it from the end into the beginning. So, so we just finished the Torah and now we're starting it again. But we also know that the last letter of the Torah is Lamed, and the first letter of the Torah is Bez, or Vez, and that spells the word Lev, which is heart. So in other words, there's this almost like this circulatory system that's formed uh, by the Torah, which is just sort of pumping life, you know, throughout this, this probably this grand spiral would be even more accurate than, um, than a circle. And, and it's, it's, it's our heart itself. So, so looking at it from the point of view of, of the end of the Torah, going into the beginning of the Torah, is going to provide all sorts of insights. Now, we've been saying over Simcha's Torah and everything like that, quoting the, uh, the Kutzka Rebbe, who, who sort of lays the foundation for, for all approaches like this, I think, by saying that what is it that we were celebrating on Simcha's Torah itself? which is when, of course, we finish the Torah and then begin the Torah again right away. So there's a big celebration, and, um, and he says, what is it that we're, we're celebrating right now? The fact that we've gotten to the end of the Torah, and we realize we haven't even begun it yet. Meaning to say that we haven't even begun to grasp what it is that's contained in it. And that's our greatest celebration, because we're basically celebrating the infinity of the Torah itself. Um, with that in mind, with that in mind, there's there's some imagery that the end of the Torah suggests that I'd like to sort of like explore, and it's going to sort of set the scene for for some of the the deeper things that we're going to talk about today, namely what exactly went wrong in the Garden of Eden, and also how are we to understand the whole um, Kabbalistic narrative of the shattering of the vessels that took place before creation itself. So we're going to sort of touch on these, these, these different things. Um, but again, let's go back to the, to the end of the Torah. So, so one of the, one, one of the, for me, the, the coolest things about the way the Torah ends, um, if you look especially at, at Rashi and the Ramban, is there's a very startling imagery with the way the Torah ends. Now, you have to look into the commentaries in order to see it, because otherwise it, it, it's, a little bit, um, it's a little bit concealed just in the words itself. But the, the Torah ends with the, um, with, with the words that, uh, uh, recalling the strong hand and awesome power that Moshe performed before the eyes of Israel. Le'ene kol Yisrael, before the eyes of all Israel, Moshe, with a strong hand, did these wondrous things. So, so again, we're, we're at the end of the Torah, but we know that the end of the Torah is just opening us up for the beginning of the Torah. So, so, so Rashi, Rashi brings something very interesting. He says, what is this strong hand? This strong hand refers to the fact that Moshe smashed the first tablets. And again, if you know, if you were, if you were to come up with an end of, to the to the Torah, probably recalling the smashing of the tablets would not be the note that you'd want to end up. And yet, God, who wrote the Torah, decided, no, 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 that's the perfect way to end. <laughs> so, so given that, we, it, it strikes me that 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 on, again on one level, going back to the words of the Kutzka Rebbe, this idea that we've gotten to the end of the Torah and we realize we haven't even begun it yet. In other words, what's being smashed here, I'd like to suggest, are preconceptions about what the Torah actually is. 
so that once we shatter those, we're able to open ourselves up and learn the Torah again, but like it's a brand new book, because our old notion of what it was doesn't exist anymore. Um, right when we were about to start the Torah all over again, someone ran up to me and at, the, at the Happy Minion and said, hey, didn't we just read this book? And I looked at him seriously and I said, no. Mm-hmm. You know, so it was like that, that moment where it sort of like all kind of landed with this notion that, no, 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 this is, this is a brand new, this is brand new. Now, you know, I'll just, uh, just throw this in also, just because, um, just because it's, it's, it's on the subject. And again, it's, it's part of Breshis, um, which is, everybody knows, it says that when we ate from the tree of knowledge, death was brought into the world. And I heard Reb Shlomo explain, you know, interpersonally, and also in terms of our relationship with, uh, with, with God as well, that if you get to this place of quote-unquote knowing, or what we would call tree of knowledge knowing, which is sort of like a, 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 a intellectual form of knowing that's, that's not holistic, that's not attached to the heart, which is um, its own form of parochialness. You know, in other words, there, there is perhaps an increase of knowledge, but not of wisdom. So it's, it's, it's a type of knowing that can actually bring death into the world. So he says that sometimes people in relationships, they've decided that they know the other person to the point where they know what they're going to say and they know what they're going to do and everything like that. And when that happens, when you relate to another person in that way, that type of knowing brings a type of death to the relationship. And, and I think that that's the case with us and God as well. Now that we're in a new year, let's let's try not to quote-unquote know God, meaning in this tree of knowledge way of knowing God, meaning to say, I, I once heard Reb, Reb Shlomo say a couple of times, and he would say it with a lot of pain in his heart, which is he'd say, can we stop making God so small? Because I think that a lot of times we do that. A lot of times when we imagine God or try to grasp God or whatever it is, we imagine him to be a better, stronger, smarter, more powerful version of us. And God is so far beyond that. First of all, God doesn't have a body. God makes bodies. God is beyond, 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 beyond. And, you know, as as Hashem says in 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 one of the in one of the verses, my thoughts are not your thoughts. And my ways are not your ways. And so let's maybe as a way of starting the new year and not falling into this trap of tree of knowledge, knowing of each other and of Hashem, of not looking at God as a stronger version of us and not making him so small, you know? Um, Again, what that will do is open up our relationship with God. I know one of the things that Reb Shlomo, when he married me and my wife, blessed us with was that we should always surprise each other. See, because surprising each other is the, is the antidote to knowing. You see? Because when you're surprised and you realize if someone is capable of surprising you, then, then how well do you know them? Right? So God, in reality, is surprising us all the time. So let's key into that aspect of the relationship, and then that's going to lead to a a renewal in terms of our relationship, God willing. So, so again, the shattering of the luchos, the way the Torah ends, this reminder that that we don't know, and now we can open ourselves up to a higher to a higher level of knowing. Now I see here that the Ramban says something which is very consistent with this type of um, with this type of imagery as we're going from the end of the Torah into the beginning of the Torah, the Ramban comments that the strong hand of Moshe, right? Remember, the Torah ends, and by the strong hand and awesome power that Moshe performed before the eyes of all Israel, that this is actually referring to the splitting of the Red Sea. Now that's a whole 
kind of another take. But what happens when the sea parts? You see like there's a whole vista in front of you that you didn't see. And this miraculous vista. Not only that, but it says that as the Jews walked through the, the Red Sea, there were all sorts of miracles, including that the, 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 the smallest among us, spiritually speaking, had visions of the heavens higher than the prophet Yechezkel, Ezekiel, who describes what was going on in Shemayim. So, so, so now the Torah is ending on this climactic, prophetic note, but again, the splitting of the sea, allowing us to walk through to the beginning of the Torah, right? But now we're walking through to a brand new Torah, right? Having this, this incredible experience as well, all the holidays which have lifted us up to this sort of quasi-prophetic state. All right, now, now I want to go deeper. I want to go deeper because, remember, as the Ramban brings in the beginning of, of, of his commentary on, on the Torah, um, that the Torah itself is black fire on white fire. Now, the first thing that that tells us is that no one should be so mistaken as to think that, that it's just ink on parchment. Because first of all, we know the Torah is not a book. The Torah is the, the whole, it's the infinite compressed into the finite. It's the DNA of the cosmos. It's, it's the compressed will of God, right? There's all sorts of ways to understand it, but, but none of them should be that it's a book. It's, it's, it, it, it appears in book form, but all of the letters of the Torah ascend all the way to like the outer limits and other dimensions of reality. Remember, it's saying that the, the angels are learning the Torah. And the, the Torah that the angels are learning is like so beyond, it's like on a completely different level, even though it's the same Torah. Remember, remember what it says in the Gomorrah, that, that when Moshe went to get the Torah, the angels tried to stop him. And Hashem says, well, go ahead, like essentially debate the angels. And Moshe grabs on to, like, you know, to the Kisei covered to the throne of glory. He starts debating the angels. Now, I remember when, when I first heard about this, first learned about this, I thought, this is going to be the most amazing section of Torah I've ever learned in my life. Moshe is in heaven debating the angels? This is going to be, wow, wow, what follows? And Moshe makes a series of arguments like this. Do you have parents that you have to honor your parents? Do you get tired during the work week that you need Shabbos? And I was like, so disappointed. <laughs> I was like, wait a second. And then, and then, even more amazingly, and he makes a series of arguments like this, then the angels go, ah, you win! <laughs> like, like, they're amazed. I'm so not amazed, but they're so amazed. And then they just throw in the towel and, you know, okay, we'll, we get the Torah. The Jewish people get the Torah. So it took a while to try to, like, figure out, like, why was that so, une so unexciting to me and so phenomenally exciting to the angels? And the answer is that that the angels are learning, remember the angels are learning the same Torah that we are, but they're learning it from another dimension. And in their dimension, the idea, wait a second, you mean when I'm learning the passage, honor your father and your mother, there's actually like this corporal entity which you sprang from and you've got to give honor to that? Whoa! Right? Each one of these things were like mind-blowing chidushim, like brand new insight, like revolutionary insights from the point of view of a totally spiritual creature. And so what sounds like very kind of like meat and potatoes, kind of like just sort of like he just seems to just be reading what's on the page. Well, it's, it, 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 it strikes them as something else because... The Torah itself is, even though it's the same Torah, it's existing in other dimensions and completely spiritualized forms. Okay? So again, we're just making the point that the Torah, the Torah is black fire on white fire. 
Now the black fire is the revealed realms. The white fire is the unrevealed realms. In other words, those are the spiritual realms that we can't see with our eye. Okay, so, so the Torah scroll itself, you see now, is actually a, a map of the cosmos, right? Beyond the cosmos, just other dimensions, right? But that's the white fire. The black fire is what we can see with our eyes, okay? So now, what's very interesting is we've got the smashing of the luchos, according to Rashi, right? And now we're going from this journey, from the last letter of the Torah, this last lamed, this last peninsula of black fire, of revealed realm, and we're swimming through these waters of white fire on the way to the first letter of the Torah, right? So now, what is going on in terms of this white fire before the first bays of Breshit, before the first letter of the Torah? What is going on in that white fire beforehand? So we've got, we've got the shattering of the luchos, right? The, the, of the, of the, not the, uh, of the shattering of the luchos at the end of the Torah, that's actually already on the level of black fire. But we've got the, the shviras hakelim, which is the shattering of the vessels before creation itself. So we'll, we'll, we'll explain what that means in a second. But the first thing that I want to note is and this came to me, which is that this amazing parallel between the smashing of the luchos and the shattering of the vessels, right? And that you see sort of this hint, this hint to the shattering of the vessels at the end of the Torah before the Torah begins, right? A very, a very deep hint. Um, not only that, but the Medrash Rabbah says on the word Vayechulu Hashamayim, Remember, that's, that's how, as, as the Torah begins, it gives an account of the seven days of creation. And the, the last day of creation, meaning, meaning Shabbos, um, that, that, that Shabbos begins with this word, Vayichulu, which means to be finished. Right? That the, but we know it wasn't completely finished um, because the world is still in the process of being created but finished for now. This sort of like, what we have to work with, the working draft of creation, that's what got set into place. But remember, the working draft of creation got set into place after we ate from the tree of knowledge. So in other words, this world that existed on the sixth day before we ate from from the tree of knowledge, a much more perfected type of world, still not completely complete, right? Because as Reb Shlomo says, if the Garden of Eden was such perfect paradise, what was the snake doing there? Right? So, so we had a job to do even before we ate from the tree of knowledge. Right? And just to make the point, because I, I just have to keep on making this point, it's so essential for people's understanding, that this world is a place where we were primarily brought in to do a job. Right? And I think that people are so confused about this in terms of the importance of work that people think that the Garden of Eden was a spa and we ruined the spa. <laughs> and that's not, that is not what the Torah says. It's not what the Torah says. We, we, even before we ate from the Tree of Knowledge, we had a job to do. So the very first thing that we had to do was to do this job. And then we got thrown and then it went down from there okay so so and let me just throw in a couple more teachings on that before we go back to this shattering of the vessels just because they're these are all cash tars these are all things that as Reb Shalma would say you have to have in your pockets at all time another teaching is that we weren't exiled from the garden of Eden after we ate from the tree of knowledge this is essential. This is essential that everybody knows this. If you look in the Torah at the account, we didn't eat from the tree and then God says, get out. That is not what happened. We ate from the tree, then we hid, then God said to us what happened, and then we blamed each other and didn't take responsibility. And then we got kicked out. This is essential. 
because people should not think that God is waiting to zap us. And as soon as we do something wrong, we're going to get zapped. That's not what the Torah says at all. It's vastly misunderstood. God gave us an opportunity to take responsibility and to do tshuva, and instead we just blamed each other. Okay, and then God says, okay, so now we're going to do it a different way. So, another important point, which is that even before um, Eve was created, the first thing that happens with Adam, incredible, incredible teaching. See, and a lot of people miss this. Most people miss this. Because it's a little bit, you have to read the verses carefully and you have to read the commentators in order to understand this point. People think that like grass and greenery and herbs and all the rest were created on, I think it's the third day, I'm not sure, you can check, whatever it was. Um, Third day, yeah. People think that that's what happened. It's only part of what happened. The Torah does say that, but, but there's an important PS, which again, you have to go into the commentaries in order to understand what I'm about to tell you, which is that while they were created, it says that they were just underneath the ground. They hadn't sprouted yet. That's the key point. They were created, but they were not manifest yet. Now, when God creates Adam, the first thing that Adam does, and God obviously gives him this sort of like divine sort of like insight that this is what he's supposed to do, is that Adam prays for rain. And and this or the mist or whatever it is, some sort of, you know, nourishing kind of like water, basically. And Adam prays, and all of these um, plants that are created but ready to spring and are waiting for Adam's prayer, all of a sudden they rock it out of the ground. Like imagine like the Garden of Eden that you have in mind that Adam and Chava were born into wasn't that way until Adam utters this prayer. And then all of a sudden the whole place is transformed. Now, now that in itself is interesting, but this is the point. The point is, the very first interaction that God designed, because where did, how does Adam know anything? He's like moments old. How does he know to pray for this moisture and, you know, to, to transform the garden? Obviously that was given to him by divine gift, right? So that was God's plan. But, but again, here's the point. That God designed it that mankind's first interaction with God should be an answered prayer. And, and, and that comes in two parts. First, to pray. The first thing that, that we're to, the first thing that we as a species encounter, the first thing that we do when we're created is that we pray. The very, very first thing that we do, which is, which is to, to, to reach out to God, to connect with the divine, to, to transcend. That's the very first thing that, that the human being does. And then the very next thing that happens is God shows us tangibly that he's hearing our prayers and that he's transforming the world based on our prayers. Now again, like that's so powerful to understand that this is our very first experience. Our very, 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 very first experience. And this is before Chava is created. This is before Eve is created or anything like that, you know. And I'll tell you another thing that I saw from the Ramban, which is that one of the jobs that Adam has before he's granted his, his, uh, his soulmate is he has to name the animals. And they're presented to him in, in, in pairs. I saw that uh, in one of the commentaries. Um, but, but one of the things... You see, one of the things that Adam is also looking for is to see, well, who's going to be his other part? Because he's seeing that 
that, that this is sort of like the way of nature for things to come in pairs. And the Ramban says something very, very interesting, which is that Adam realizes that he, none of these animals are his soulmate. And by that, he comes to realize that he is above the animals, that human beings have to understand that we are of a, just a different order. We're a different order. We're human beings with souls in us. See, contemporary society wants to tell you that you are an animal, essentially, and that all of your urges should be indulged, and that this is your right as a creature, and, and that, that this is the way of nature for creatures to indulge their urges. And so one of the very first lessons that Adam is shown is that he can't marry any of these animals because he's of a different order. And so, so, so there's this self-awareness of, wow, okay, I'm something else. That's, that's, that's striking in and of itself. Okay. So now I want to get back to this idea of the shattering of the vessels. So remember, the first, we want to look at the, the white fire before the first evidence of black fire. Remember, the black fire is that which is revealed. The white fire is like the realms beyond, the spiritual realms that, that we can see. So the first letter of the Torah, interestingly, is, is Bays, the Bays of Bratius. And we know that, that Bays is the number two. So number two suggests duality and separation, meaning to say, when there's 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 you and me, you know, there's there's two separate kind of entities going on right now, and and that's already the beginning of of exile, if you will. It's already our introduction to this dimension that we're in right now. This this illusion of independence, this illusion of separation. Okay? Now, I don't know if I shared it with you yet, but it's something that I've been, coming to, been focused on lately. You see, what happened when we ate from the, the tree of knowledge is that we had a big spiritual fall. And, and one of the repercussions of that was this... this this notion of um, independence, that, that, that this world, God becomes radically more concealed than he was. Although, you see, when we look at a flower, you cannot see God. But once your eyes become open, how can you look at a flower and not see God? Right? But, but what happened was, this shift took place in terms of our consciousness. The, the bet of Breshit, this tunis, this idea that there's this, this, this idea of separation, is the exile itself. Now, this imagery that I was just referring to is, I was imagining, can you imagine like a woman who's like nine months pregnant, and the, the fetus is inside the woman's stomach, and he's smoking cigarettes and drinking beer and watching Netflix? He's got some empties around him. And the mom's like, what's going on? And the fetus is like, yo, you know, this is my deal. What do you know? What do you, let me do my thing. You know, I'm my own guy. And meanwhile, there's like this umbilical cord. <laughs> what do you mean? Like you're, it's, it's the height of delusion. It's the height of delusion. So that's us and God. God is sustaining the world every single moment. God is sustaining us every single moment. And we're like, you know what? Thank you, but not for me. I, you know, again, again, what, what I call bad math, that we think that God exists to the extent that we believe in him. Oh, you're very religious, so God, ex- there's a lot of God. <laughs> you're not so, I'm not so religious, not so much God. God is an absolute. <laughs> God is not, 
The presence of God and the power of God is not subject to our approval. (laughs) It exists beyond us. Right? And to the extent that we try to limit it, it's the fetus in the stomach, you know, mashing out a cigarette and opening up another pack from the carton, right? And say, like, no, this is, you know, I'm a totally independent creature. This is my deal, not your deal, you know? So, so where does this come from? Where does this idea of separation come from? So now we have to go all the way back. So now let's get to sort of the story, if you will, or the account in the white fire, leading up to the Bays of Reishis, leading up to this idea of, remember, Bays is the number two, of separation. Where is that, where is that coming from? So our holy rabbis explain that, that God, that, that the first thing that God did was, it, 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 this is a process called tzimtzum, um, which is um, translated as contraction. And, and the first thing that God did was he made a space within himself. Right? And we're just, again, don't think anything physical because this is beyond. This is all, everything I'm going to tell you are just words, basically, to help guide the mind. But don't, don't put it too much into solid imagery because then you're, you're attributing a physicality to God that he doesn't have. So you have to understand these teachings properly, okay? But nonetheless, we have to use some sort of language to give ourselves some sort of conception. So the beginning of Tzimtzum is that God created, vacated a space, they say, created an empty space within himself, meaning to say he took this, this infinite light this or in sof, light without end. And he sort of like pushed it to the side so that he could make this quote-unquote empty space within himself. And then he shone a light in this empty space. And then that light became contracted until it became the physical universe. Okay? And then at a certain point, God used this word Shaddai, this name of Hashem, which means enough, meaning to say that he put parameters around creation. Okay? So, so when this happened, when God shone this light in, the first thing that he did was, again, you can't um, be too literal with the imagery right now, he shone it into these kalim, which means these vessels, and the vessel shattered because they couldn't contain the light. The light was too strong, so they shattered. And it says that one of the things that we're doing until this day, which is an aspect of finishing off creation, perfecting the world, is we're gathering these fallen sparks. And you do that by making blessings over food, by doing mitzvot, by doing the Torah, that's lifting up sparks. And they say that one of the reasons why we're in exile, while the Jewish people are in, in, in exile, is because we're basically going to the four corners of the world, gathering all these sparks. Okay, that's a kind of a, a deeper understanding of what is what the real story of human history is. Um, so now, after that, those vessels shattered. God did it again, but this time the vessels were united. And because they were united, they shared the light and they were able to hold the light. Okay? Now, now, I have two questions on this. Right? And it was something that, that I was thinking about. I want to share just my, my understanding of it. Which is, number one, what are we talking about when we say a vessel? Because we know that they weren't these jars floating up in outer space. Because this is before time and space. That's number one. Number two, why did it fail the first time? Meaning to say this is God, and God knows what he's doing. So why would it have not worked the first time? Well, you say, okay, well, the light was too strong for the vessels. So God knows everything. So God could have made stronger vessels. 
So why would it fail? So what are the vessels and why did it fail? That's, that, those are the questions. Okay. So I want to suggest the following. You see, we talk about um, olamos, that's how you say it in Hebrew, which means worlds. And in fact, one of the ways we refer to God in the prayers is Rabon Kol Olamot, which means master of all the worlds. It's a very exalted way of addressing God, master of all the worlds. You know? so, um, so the idea is you have to kind of, you know, like the kind of like those uh, Russian dolls, each doll fits into a larger one, a larger one, a larger one, a larger one, right? So that's what they say are like the spiritual realms, that there's like a, a, a dimension, right? And you have to think of it in terms of like, almost like energy or whatever it is. There's like a dimension, and then underneath that is another dimension which encloses that first dimension, right? And, but underneath that is another dimension which encloses the previous dimension, okay? So... So when we talk about vessels, my understanding is there has to have been that very, 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 very first moment where the realm of spirituality enters into, becomes contracted and becomes that micron, ultra-micron thin layer of materiality, right? Which would be the beginning of the vessel to hold the light. Like we've been talking about up until now, that each spiritual realm has a realm underneath it, right? Which holds that, which is a vessel for that light or that realm. Is that clear? So, but that means tracking it back to the very beginning of the process, there had to be that initial moment where the materiality, where the light becomes contracted sufficiently to become the very first vessel to hold the highest light. Is that clear? Right? Can you picture that? So that is what I'd like to suggest is the vessel that we're talking about. It was the very first evidence of materiality or physicality in the universe. But again, we're talking about it on such an exalted level, it was still in the realm of light and energy, pure energy, but it already was contracted to an extent that was more so for the first time than the previous realm. And so it was already now the first evidence of what we would call materiality. Okay? Now, that of course couldn't hold the light and shattered. Couldn't hold the light and it shattered. So now the question is, why? Why didn't God make it stronger? So the first thing is that we have to realize that when we say that the light shattered, that it wasn't a failure on the part of God, that it was God's plan. Ah, okay. Oh, so then why would God want it to shatter? Right? Because usually if you make something and it breaks, that's a drag, right? You don't want to make something and it break. So how was it not a mistake? How was it, how, how, why was, why did God want to do that? So I want to suggest the following answer, which is that as soon as you had that layer of materiality, right? What you had at that moment was the ability to imagine a realm of separation. Because you had a dividing line, so to speak, or a border between below and above. And now you had the ability to imagine that God wasn't here right now with us all the time. That was the first borderline separating us and God because it was the first evidence of materiality versus spirituality. 
And so God, as we say, Dafka, intentionally wanted to shatter that. God wanted to get rid of that illusion to show us that there is no separation, even in the material realms, between us and God. Not only that, but he wanted to shatter it, and in shattering it, why was it shattered? Because it was so supercharged with light that it couldn't couldn't hold the light. So God wanted to imbue the first evidence of materiality with the Spirit of God. So that we should be able to look at a flower and say, what do you mean you don't see God? It's right here. What do you, what do you mean? You're wondering if there's a God. Look at the sky. Look at, look at that person's eyes. Right? Look, look, at that. look at all the technology around us. Look at all the amazing miracles around us. How is any of this happening? So all of materiality then becomes imbued with the light of God. And that's what I would like to suggest is the, the smashing of the caliph. The smashing of the vessels, the shattering of the vessels was to get rid of any sense that there's a border between us and him and to imbue materiality, to supercharge it with the light of God. Okay, now I want to go deeper. So this is Torah from... The Magalia Mukos, and it's 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 a commentary on the Rivid on Sefer Yitzira. So I was sharing with the with the Happy Minion um, that that one time I was I was flying to Israel. And um, out of the window from the plane, I saw the top of a mountain. And the top of the mountain, I saw um, very clearly this waterfall going into this pool of water. But it was at the top of a mountain, you know? And I have this, this imagery of that, which is like, like, can you imagine what that water tastes like? You know? Like, Wow. And, and so, so when we learn Torahs from like the Magalia Mukos, from the Rivet, from the Sefer Yetzirah, <laughs> should know that you're like drinking from those waters. I mean, these are like the most exalted, exalted sources. Like, you know, if you can hear anything from this, it's like, wow, thank God you made a world and you made me in it and I can, gave me a brain. Okay, so... So what does the Magalia Muko say? So what, 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 what he's focusing in on now is the moment, the moment that everything went wrong in the Garden of Eden. Meaning to say, meaning to say, the root, the root of all problems in this world, the root of all exile, or the root, <coughs> we say that the Torah begins with the letter Bez, right, which is this, Illusion of separation, right? Where did that where did that happen? So we already talked about it on a cosmic level, right? That was the shattering of the vessels. Now let's get into it in terms of human consciousness. When did it happen in terms of human perception, thinking that 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 we were other from God? So he he finds it in an illusion, in this word, which is basically when Eve blames the snake. And remember, this is, this, is, this is the turning point of when exile begins for human beings. Because it's not when we made the mistake of eating from the tree. This is when we denied responsibility and started blaming each other. This is the moment when exile really begins. And this is, if you want to See with your own eyes. It's um, it's chapter three, um, verse thirteen. Okay, and and um, and and it says that the woman said, meaning Chava, the serpent deceived me, and the word in Hebrew is <coughs> Hishiani, 
Now, this word, hishiani, is absolutely remarkable. We're going to see some amazing, amazing things in this word. So, hishiani, um, uh, the Magalia Mukos, right, points out that we're, we're going to take away the letter he, okay, because that, that's, um, that's a gr- grammatical construct. That's, that's creating what we call, call in Hebrew the causative tense, which is, he caused me, he deceived me, he caused me to be deceived, like it's his fault. See, okay? So if we take away the, the grammatical construct and then just focus in on the, on the, the essential letters of the word, the, the essence of the word itself. So if you take the, this word, hishiani, um, shiani is, is actually, if you rearrange the letters, you'll see that there's actually two words there. Okay? This is so amazing. Again, what are we doing? We're, we've got an x-ray right now. An x-ray of human consciousness, of the world, and we're, we're locating the moment where, where everything went wrong. Okay? Hishiani is the letters that spell two words. Ani and yesh. Ani means I, like me, and yesh is, there is. There's substance to me. I am. I am the essential construct of creation. Mm. Right? This is the total shift of consciousness. Right? From, from understanding that we're part of this like, cosmic unity of God. And that God is like our, 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 our loving parent who's like right there and, 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 and everything like that to this delusion of independence, yeshani, there is me, meaning now it's just all about me, and it's what I think, and I'm the final authority, and you know what? If I want it, yes. If I don't want it, no. And it's all about me. Now, now, now the Magali Muko says something amazing here right now. He says that Two doors, right? We've got, we've got two words here. Yesh and Ani. There is I. That two doors shut when, when, um, when, when this was said. In terms of the shift in consciousness. Now, doors, the, 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 the word for door is related to the Hebrew letter Dalid. So in other words, two Dalids were removed because two doors shut, right? A door is like a Dalid. Two doors shut, therefore, from Ani and Yesh, I am, what the shift is, two Dalids were removed and they were both given to David HaMelech. Remember, David is spelled Dalit Vav Dalit. So da- David gets the two Dalits. Okay, we're, we're still, this is all encrypted still. We're going to explain all of this. But the Magalia Mukos is talking about two Dalits, meaning two doors disappeared, and they reappear in David HaMelech, who again is the soul of Mashiach. Okay, so now let's, let's track this, what happened exactly. See, this is like, these Torahs are Torahs from heaven right now. These are, these are, these, this is divine wisdom that you're, that we're learning right now, okay? If you add the letter Dalid to Yesh, right? Yesh, again, means there is, meaning, and it's working with the, with the other word, Ani, right? There is I, the substance to me. I'm the essential aspect of creation. If you add the letter Dalit to Yesh, you get the name of God Shaddai. And, and so all of a sudden this, like, this illusion of self disappears into this divine name, Shaddai. Right? And what, is, what did we say that when God created the universe, he uttered this name Shaddai, and that created parameters. 
So the first thing that a person, if they want to fix themselves, they have to say, this notion of yesh, that I'm essential, you know, that I'm the essential component of creation, that it's all about me, Shaddai, enough. <laughs> put, put borders, put borders around your consciousness and understand that there's something beyond you. And also in terms of one's desires, like this, this, this idea of ultimate entitlement, right? Only ultimate entitlement comes to God. We can't claim ultimate entitlement. It's, it's a lie. It's, 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 it's worse than false. It's a lie. So now let's go to the other word. Remember, two doors closed. Ani, if you add the letter Dalid to the, to the word Ani, Ani again means I, it spells Adonai. <laughs> Aleph, Dalid, Nun, Yud which again is a name of God. Again, the I, this notion of total solipsistic self-consciousness disappears, this I disappears into the oneness of God. And it's another divine name that's, that's spelled by adding the letter Dalit. And Adonai means master. And 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 when God says, name the various animals, and that's in the Chumash, that's in the Torah itself, in the written account, but then the Medrash adds a P.S. After Adam named the animals, God then said to Adam, and what is my name? And Adam says, Adonai, my master. Meaning to say that he, he understood the relationship. So now, again, amazingly, these two letters, these two Dalits become manifest in the name of David. Because, because the Mashiach traces his lineage back to King David. And the Mashiach will coincide with the fixing of the world, which will be the rectification of our consciousness. So the root of the fixing of the restoration of the Dalits goes back to Mashiach, because when Mashiach comes, our consciousness is going to revert again back to this notion of total unity with God. And not this realm of Yeshani, this realm of separation. Dalits, the, where do the Dalits come from? So the Dalits, remember, it's the same word in Hebrew. The letter Dalit and a door is the same is, is the same word basically. And so the idea is that when we ate from the tree of knowledge, the doors of perception closed. Like when you close a door, what do you do? You create a barrier between one side of the room. Like when a door is open, it's basically one unity, right? But when you close a door, you create a barrier, right? And so the way the closing of these two doors, right? The way these doors closed mirrored this shift in consciousness of human beings who, who basically had the level of consciousness before they ate from the tree of knowledge of Shaddai and Adonai, but when the Dalids, when the doors closed, the Dalids flew out of these names and it became Yeshani. It became, there is me. So, so that's the closing of the doors, the flying out of the Dalids from these two names, which was our level of consciousness, right? And now it becomes a much more shifted kind of thing of, 
of the ability where we can have the chutzpah to start blaming each other and not taking responsibility and thinking we're more than we are and all sorts of things like that. And then it becomes restored with David HaMelech. See, David HaMelech, I wish I had the Medrash in front of me right now, so I'm just going to paraphrase it. But um, see, David HaMelech is awesome. He's beyond, 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 beyond awesome. First of all, just on the most basic level, he's, he's like perhaps history's greatest poet, right? Because throughout all of history, you know, if you look at like a lot of, um, you know, we, we've got a, say for Tehillim, the book of Psalms is, that's a lot. Okay, he didn't write all of them, but there's a lot of writing that we have of his. You know, for an ancient poet, I mean, they're prayers, they're divine. But still, that's, that's a, we've got a substantial body of written work. Just again, to just look at it on the most basic level, from King David. And, and to understand that he was a king and a warrior at the same time, like an expert warrior, like sword-in-hand warrior, and running a government. I mean, this is, this is right? And, 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 and a great friend, right? And, and, a, and an amazing, like, husband. Like, he, he's like, he's, we say, well, who can, who, who is like that exactly? Oh, oh, that's why he's soul of Mashiach, right? Because this is, like, the soul of Mashiach. Meaning to say that when you understand that, how could he have been great in so many different realms? It just, it, it's sort of like if you actually think of it in terms of, well, you know, who is like that today? Who is like, there's really, no one even compares to this level. So, so you understand a, a sense of his greatness. Now, in talking about battling, I, I mentioned a Medrash. I'm going to paraphrase it because I, I, I can't remember all the names of the kings and, and how it works exactly. But, um, but, but, but one king says, praise to God, Please, um, as I go into battle, um, you know, you know, make make me victorious. And then the next king says, you know what? I can't even, I can't even uh, pray a prayer like that. Please, don't even, don't make my enemies victorious. And then I'll be victorious. And then another king says, you know something? I can't even get to that level of prayer anymore. I'm not even going to go to the battlefield. You know, so so. So make us victorious, because otherwise, if I go to the battlefield, I'm going to think that I'm the one who's doing it, right? These other people could take part in the battle, but, um, and, and, and be on the spiritual level where they, they understood that they weren't the ones accomplishing the victory. But I can't even do that, so I'm going to stay home from the battle and, and pray for victory, because I know, God, it's, it's you who's doing it. And then the last king says, you know what? I'm not even going to get out of bed. Because if I get out of bed, I'm going to think that I'm the one who did it. So from bed, I'm going to pray that, that you make us victorious, God. Because otherwise, if I put in that much effort of even getting out of bed, I'm going to think that I'm the one who's responsible for the victory. Now, meanwhile, King David is the one who's actually in the battle swinging the swords at the front of the army. Now the Medrash says, who is the greatest believer? So, on a surface level, you'd say, well, the person who doesn't even get out of bed, because the person who doesn't even get out of bed is like, wow, he has such belief in God that, that he's not even, you know, taking the first step toward getting involved in the battle. But the answer is that King David is the greatest believer, and the reason is because he was able to maintain total amuna, total faith that everything is coming from God as he's swinging swords on his horse, defeating the enemy in front of him, not placing any, any sort of gaiva or arrogance or, or notion of self in what is being transacted. This is the ultimate. This is the ultimate. And now you can see, getting back to, to Adam and Achava and, and King David, 
what we're talking about here, where, where their initial states of consciousness were these two divine names, both with the, with the letters Dalit, right? Shaddai, which is like, again, God is like, you know, the creator of the entire universe and everything like this. And, and, and Adonai, God is, is, is also my master, right? Within, like, beyond, beyond the physical realms and within the physical realms, God is the master. Then all of a sudden the doors close. That's the letter Dalit, because Dalit and door are the same. The doors close, the letters fly out, and now I think Yeshani, it's all about me. Then the Dalits reappear in this amazing personage of David Amelech, King David, who's now able to live in this world which appears to be independent, which appears to be separated, and yet he's able to conduct himself in the most physically grueling way and only seeing the hand of God and only seeing the oneness of God. And that is the fixing of the world. That's the fixing of the world. And that's why he would have died at 930 years. Who? Given 70 years to David. No, he was the one. No, he, no Adam lived for a certain... Yeah. Adam gave away 70 years. He gave 70 years for David and Melo. He wouldn't have had any, any life at all. Right. But it's another connection between the two of them. Right. So that's another, that's another level of fixing because Adam lives for 930 years. David Hamelech lives for 70 years. And so the rabbis point out something very striking that adds up to 1,000 years. And so they understand that part of Adam's fixing, right, was to give an aspect of his life force to David Hamelech who it says that he was able to see all generations till, till the end of days and to see that there was this incredible soul that was only going to live for three hours and that he was able to give him a chunk of his life, which was part of Adam's fixing himself, was to be able to transfer, transfer his life force, his years, to David Amelech to effect this rectification. Right? So, so that's... Uh, yeah, and in fact... They say that Adam, which is spelled Aleph Dalid Mem, is an acronym for Adam, is the Aleph, right? That's the person himself. Dalid, within the word Adam, Dalid stands for David, King David, and the Mem stands for Mashiach. And what's so cool about the Mem of Mashiach there is it's a final Mem. It's all closed up, meaning to say from the very beginning to the end, to the sealing of creation, the perfection of the world. Well, the um, the Medrash says that uh, David Melech went to bed, and then he had a harp above his head, right? Because he played this harp, and that at midnight, at exactly Chatzot, a, a north wind would blow, and it would strum the strings on the harp and that would wake him up. It's like this divine, holy alarm clock. He would wake up, and he would then pray, please, God, let me hear all the prayers of Israel. And that God would take him up to this place, and he would hear all the prayers that the Jewish people were reciting, and David Amalek would write them down, and they say that then became the book of Psalms. So the, the universality of the Psalms, the reason why the whole world basically throughout all of history goes to the book of Psalms is because it really is the sort of, to speak, the, the spiritual journal of humanity itself that was written down by King David in his divine insight. So after he slayed the lion, he went to sleep and then came up the Lord my shepherd when he woke up the next morning. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not sure how that, that happened, but yeah. yeah. When, you, when you say about um, the, the Dalits, I, I think the Dalits number four, which represents the physical, like, the containing a, a world, like, the world is sort of like a square that can contain. So I think also that David is Malchus, because he, he's... You're saying if you put two Dalits together, you make a mem? Is that what you're saying? No, I'm just saying about the Dalits that you were saying yeah. about the, from the Shaddai and the Adonai. Yeah. So I, when I'm, I'm listening to you, I'm thinking of the Shaddai is like the, it seems like it's 
the Hashem more manifestive, and Adana is like the higher realms. I don't know if that's how you were saying that's more of the boundaries. So, um, so these two worlds, if you take away the Dalits, it's like may, some, maybe looking from perspective of like the real Yesh and the real Ani Mm-hmm. Right, right. And then when you're putting in dollars, you're sort of manifesting those things, and the Melech is sort of being the Malchus for it. Like he's yeah, beautiful. bringing the two dollars with yeah. love in the middle to connect. Right, but he's bringing, it's not just the rectification of Adam and Chava, it's really drawing it down from Hashem himself. Right. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, very nice. Okay, guys. One final point. Where can we get that Dalit in our lives? Meaning to say, these Dalits which flew out of the divine names and left us with Yesh and Ani. And I'd like to suggest that then when we say Shema, um, everybody knows that the big Dalit in the Torah is the Dalit at the end of a Chad in Shema. We say Shema Yisrael, Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem Echad, and that's the big Dalit. We have to, um, we're instructed to, to pronounce the Dalit. Um, there are different, actually, traditions on and how actually to pronounce the Dalit, but, but nonetheless, we make a point of making sure that we, we, we emphasize that Dalit. So, meaning to say, that's the Dalit, which is the culmination, the realization of the oneness of God. And that breaks through any any notions of of separation, because when we restore that dalid, and we have an opportunity to do that in our prayers, every time we say echad, the echad of Shema, the dalid of Shema, we have the ability to to re to reinvest ourselves with that dalid in our lives, and we can meditate and breaking through and just seeing the oneness of God, disappearing into the oneness of God, understanding that that we're in His arms always.